Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Think back on Wynwood before it had a Warby Parker. Back when the Wynwood Walls art exhibit was actually free. Before it was a tourist destination, a new gold rush for South Florida developers. Back then it was a place for artists to practice their street art. It was a place for artists like Scott Patterson. He went by the name Nobody, or TMNK, the Me Nobody Knows. And he soon became known in the neighborhood for the characters he painted wearing a crown and for tagging the phrase, art is my weapon. He even scaled a towering billboard of LeBron James next to the downtown arena and tagged it with the phrase, nobody can stop me. Now Scott, nobody, is the subject of a new documentary by his friend and art fan, Rico James. Rico started the film years ago, tracing nobody's path from New York to Europe to his adopted home of Miami. Scott died suddenly in 2016, and Rico stopped cold, but something kept him going. He picked up the project again and finished it this year. Rico's here to tell us about it. Welcome, Rico. Hey, thank you, Carlos. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I appreciate so much you coming in to talk with us in person about it. Tell us about Nobody, the artist that we now know, that, that we know by that name, but his name is Scott Patterson. Yeah, Nobody, TMNK, the Me Nobody Knows, um, just uh, a larger-than-life figure, um, just a guy, a presence in Wynwood, for the people in Wynwood who knew him here in Miami, uh, an extreme presence um, that was, wasn't seen in Miami before. Uh, of course, there was artists, there were, there were street artists, there was... Uh, uh, writers, there was graffiti, there, you know, there was all kinds of things that were going in Wynwood at that particular time, but there was no real standout personalities. And I, I dare say he was one of the first standout personalities, like the unofficial mayor of, of Wynwood to a lot of people <laughs> who came down there. And uh, he would greet them. And, and uh, actually, he embraced, uh, even though he came from New York, he embraced wholeheartedly the, the, the art aesthetic of Wynwood and what it stood for. Well, that's, I think, what we have to talk about first is people know Wynwood today as right. kind of a tourist destination. Exactly. It's all bright colors. Right. But take us back to the Wynwood when he moved down. Brown, what year was that? And describe it for me a little bit. So he was back and forth. So he started coming down to Wynwood, uh, I, think, uh, I think the first time was kind of like 2013. He was still living in New York. Uh, but that's when Art Basel really started uh, to come into play and people started discovering... Uh, what uh, what Winwood was so, because it was this kind of artist enclave, which wasn't officially part of Basel, right. but but it was the spillover where the local artists were. Exactly, it was a lot of local artists here. I mean, historically, you know, Winwood was a place where it was uh, factories, uh, Puerto Rican neighborhood. Uh, that's where they uh, did a lot of manufacturing. Uh, and what happened was once China took over a lot of they were doing uniforms. So once China took over all those uniforms, a lot of those jobs went went away. Uh, you have these empty factories. The neighborhood starts to fall apart. Empty warehouses. Empty warehouses, yeah. which is terrible for the, the community. But, of course, now an opportunity arises. These mm -hmm. artists see it. They're like, these are perfect live workplaces for us. Right. Uh, so the artists started to live there and, and work there. And little by little, they started to uh, you know put their, their art almost everywhere. So there were small little galleries. Uh, a lot of graffiti artists were doing stuff there as well. Uh, but now you have a place where um, people are starting to champion art. Like, this is the place where we live. This is the place where we work. So there was, I mean, there's still a lot of homeless people. There were still a lot of empty houses. Um, unfortunately, crime and, and drugs always, you know, rear its ugly head. 
Yeah, that uh, part that part of of Miami for a stretch there, like I said, since the dis, uh, the garment district kind of left, right? It it was left a little bit of a of a kind of a vacuum of sure. what's going to happen here. Yeah, and and some and crime does take over those areas. Yeah, they fill in that vacuum at times. But but artists like nobody help bring it back and make it accessible, bring people to the area. Right. Yeah. Like I like I said, there was artists that were living in that area, but um, everyone was kind of keeping to themselves. And he was like, no, this is what. You know, we need to be loud and proud and show what what we are and who we are. And this was a place where he could do it, uh, where you couldn't be you weren't you weren't demonized for being an artist or you were like uh, you could dress how you wanted to dress. You can do what you wanted to do. So he was kind of that second or third wave of artists that were like really, really uh, putting it out there for people. Uh, and, and it was a place where I, I told the story today that. He used to ride a skate. That was his motor transportation was a skateboard. If you knew nobody, he was on a skateboard. Longboard guy. Long. He had he had a couple different boards, but yeah, he would have, he had a longboard and he he'd had a art is my weapon on. He had a couple boards, but even I'm a, I'm a, I was a carved guy growing up. So oh yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that was his mode of transportation of getting you. around. But the police would stop him and say, "Hey, you can't ride your your, your skateboard out here," which is crazy. Which is crazy. Like you think about Winwood now. There's scooters running around. There's all kinds of stuff going on. But at that particular time. That's what we're talking about, uh, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014. Yeah. I think 10 years. From yeah, now. 10 years from now, 10 years ago, um, you weren't able to do things like that. And because the police were, they were like, okay, once they start seeing graffiti and stuff like that, they think that's contributing to the crime. So you guys are contributing to, to, to criminalization. You're painting on these, uh, these walls that these people own and things like that. So they were trying to curtail that, but, you know, after a while, it started to become a thing in Wynwood. Yeah, tell me about that a little bit because we've had this whole idea of graffiti right. uh, first thought of as as like a as like a blight, right? But right, really, exactly. but really, it's a medium for artists. Artists exactly Expression. like yeah, and, and it was that became the art of Wynwood, right? Like yeah, that yeah. became the heart, the 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 beginning, the foundation of Wynwood is truly art. Yeah, and truly, I mean, people again. Um, there's always the uh, fight about uh, graffiti and street art with the differences. Uh, graffiti is very specific in its styles. It has several different styles. Actually, there's a museum of graffiti in Wynwood now that actually can tell you about those styles. And then you have these art artists that are doing murals. Uh, then you have people who are doing tags, which is really just putting your name up. So there's all kinds of different things that were going on, and they were all colliding at the same time. And he did a lot of those things. He tagged. He did, he, yeah. He did street art. Exactly. He did graffiti. He did, uh, exactly. Tell me about his art a little bit. In other words, put it in a context for me because, you know, some of the artists that I think of coming out of Wynwood right. and I think of street art, I think of guys like Atomic right. with the Smiling Orange. Exactly. We got the guy that does the eyes whose name we can't say on radio. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can't say, you can't say uh, his name. You I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Hole sniffs glue. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we said it on go. radio. Hole sniffs glue. All right, FCC. Yeah. If I got a problem, I'm going to come find you. <laughs> come find me. We'll talk to you. Uh, but so we know the, that art now, it's ubiquitous. Right. So exactly. Describe since since he died in 2016. Right. Um, Tell us, and Miami tends to forget, and we have to remind. Right. Tell me about his art and what was what became familiar or iconic about it. Sure. I mean, uh, his particular style of art was like writing a lot of different prose. Um, okay. Art is my weapon was mm-hmm. his, was his big thing. Uh, Love stories suck was another big thing that he, that he did. 
Um, I'm not defined by your ignorance. So it wasn't only art. It was also messages because he wanted to con combine the two together. He never wanted to just do something for the art's sake. It always had a meaning behind it. And if he had to write it out, he would write it out. Sometimes he'd leave it up to you. Um, and those messages, like they were almost like you would call Picasso's blue period. Like each one, exactly. each one was a period for him, right? Exactly. So, I mean, he started a lot, lot of that in, in New York uh, and then brought it down here to Miami uh, and continued it uh, for him. Um, you know, him coming from Soho where there's years and years and layers and layers of graffiti and art and street art over top of each other, him coming to Miami, that kind of wasn't a thing and people kind of respected in the graffiti world. It's, it's a little different thing. It's called toying when you're going over other people's stuff. It's kind of a no, no, you're not supposed to do that. Right. Um, street artists are a little, um, a little more polite. You know, you don't, you know, somebody puts that up, they take time, you respect it, you don't do it. Um, nobody was doing something which he called forced collaborations, <laughs> which uh, tell me about that. So that, that I can picture that though. Yeah. So that's, you know, so for instance, so a hole or atomic, uh, they would have a piece in the street and he would, um, he would add to it. He wouldn't okay. go over it. Um, he would like type a L and then atomic would be like the O, like the orange would be the O and then V E. And that was his forced collaboration. He didn't ask to for pit from uh for permission but if he felt something that moved him he was going to put his stuff on it and his thing was if it's in the streets it's fair game right I, I i get this kind of banksy feeling where he takes something that's an obvious structure and he builds his art around it yeah. and this he's building his art around other art that he sees that he's feeling exactly and then again that that became a contention with a lot of the street arts because again you don't you kind of don't do that it's felt like a disrespect some took it as disrespect some some mm. after a while might have been honored and I did get this comment when I was doing a one interview. He said, because I asked him about it. I was like, how did you feel about this forced collaboration thing? He said, you know, it's, it's a fine line. But if you had some art up, I might not have noticed it had nobody come and added to his thing. Huh. So he may have, to you, he may have destroyed it. To me, he might have elevated it. You know, right. So it's all on how you how you view it and how you see it. And he took that to a really extreme level because um, some folks might remember um, that there was a billboard when LeBron James was with the Miami Heat. When we were and winning. When we were winning. And it was next to the, the arena. Right. And it's just a big picture of LeBron screaming and like his face is real prominent. Yeah. And he went up and wrote, um, what was the phrase? Nobody around, can stop me. Nobody can stop me where LeBron's head was the O. Right. And he built around it. And it was really cool, right. but not cool, <laughs> not cool with like some yeah. of the paint got dripped on below and he ended up, yeah. the police were involved. but. It was like on the news. He was. Yeah. Was I mean, it was deal. a big it was a big thing for him to do it. But he, had, you know, that's something about him is that, he, you know, he would see that and he'd see that opportunity. He's like, man, I could I could do. And, and that's how a lot of artists, especially graffiti artists mm -hmm. are. If you see that or you uh, you feel that in a moment, you do it. Uh, that, of course, took a lot more planning because he had to get the paint. He had to climb up on a billboard, figure out how he was going to do it. So I'm sure he sketched it out. And I I did um, I did find some video of him skateboarding. I, and I found it one time and I can't find any more of him saying, OK, I'm looking at the billboard. He took a video of the billboard and said, I'm coming, I'm coming. So just to reintroduce you, we're talking to Rico James. He's a filmmaker and he's done a documentary on the late artist nobody uh that was his his, his street name uh his real name was scott patterson he died in 2016 you're talking about guys who would just 
who would just do it. Right. Well, he did something really interesting, I thought, which was he remade his career. He was not a right. He was a he was an like I'm gonna say like me, like an older guy. Yeah, he was older. Like yeah. he wasn't a a, a kid, and no. he'd been doing. Uh, who had just been doing this consistently? Right. He tell me about that because he went from like an artistic background right. to like a very straight laced tie and suit yeah. lifestyle, right? Well, you know, he, he coming up from where he came from in, in New Jersey, coming from a, a, a black family, you know, um, who rose in the ranks. They were living in South Orange, New Jersey. Okay. Uh, his father worked for Ford. Uh, his mother was into politics. Okay. And so, you know, they rose the family up to do, you know, uh, try to be in the middle class family. And that's what you do. You you do that and you try to raise your children to be better than you were. Right. Lawyer, doctor. Doctor, uh, professional, a professional. Yeah. You know, how they, you know, if they're, if they're some type of blue collar, they, want you, they don't want you to be blue collar. They want you to be better than them. They want you to be something else. An artist was not in, 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 those, uh, in those ranks for him. Listen, when I was a kid, my dad just wanted me to have a job that was inside air conditioning. Exactly. You know? Like, that was it. That was a win. <laughs> no, I remember my mom, too, because, you know, because I always wanted to be in the entertainment business. And my mom would always say, well, so-and-so just got a job at the car shop down the street. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's that's the mentality. That the, and, and the you know, right. and you have to understand that as well for them. It wasn't them trying to uh, you know, push him to the side. It was for them to be like, listen, we want you to thrive. We want you to go to do better than us, like I right. said. Uh, but and Scott, and he did that. He did that. He did that for them. They, he wanted to, they wanted him to go to college. They, and he went to not just he went to Howard, right? He went to Howard. Uh, he went to Howard University, um, um, which is like you would call like a like historically black. That's the mecca. Uh, Hu. I went there. I graduated from Howard. Oh, that's all right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's and like we had that in common. The Ivy League, basically. It's yeah, like yeah. I mean, it's, it's the mecca. That's yeah. that's what they call it, the mecca. I mean, that's a, in terms of HBCUs and colleges. Uh, Howard is uh, ranks among one of the ho- uh, the highest. Right. Um, so he went there, just didn't feel it, just didn't fit in. But he, this is an incredibly smart guy, like right. a very, very smart guy. Um, but that's just wasn't, it wasn't his path. It wasn't what he wanted to do. So he left Howard and then went back to New Jersey and was like, okay, let me figure this out. But still was able to, um, he, he moved to, to Cali for a little while. Okay. Uh, and then he taught himself what he needed to be taught in terms of going into the corporate world and doing advertising. He ends up as a, as a working like corporate advertising. Corporate right? advertising. Yeah. So he taught, but, and then like the, the, it was trans, it was transferring from like print to digital. So he taught himself all the, 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 the software and how to do it and how to, how to make art. University of YouTube, baby. Yeah. University of the hustle. <laughs> well, this is before YouTube. Yeah. But so oh, yeah, true, right? this is where like you had, like it was a big book. If you wanted to learn Photoshop, you'd have to take a big book and read that whole book. This is before the internet. This is before all of that. Yeah. So. So he he, but then he takes he makes a hard left. Right. At some point in his life, I want to say your film says he was forty six. He was forty seven. Forty seven. Forty seven years old, and everything he was doing, he you know had the big house, had the money, had everything that everyone said that this is what you need to be successful. But he was not happy. He at wasn't all. fulfilled. He wasn't fulfilled at all. So he was just like, you know what? I always wanted to do art and. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to sacrifice everything and go it and do it at a high level. Wow. It wasn't like a thing that he was like, okay, let me just do this side thing. It was, a, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it at a high level. And the only reason, the only way I can do it at a high level 
is if I give it everything I got and there's going to be some sacrifices, just like any other job, just like anything that anybody else does. There's going to be sacrifices you have to make to excel in what you wanted to do. And that's that's what happened. We're going to take a quick little break here. We're talking to Rico James. He's a filmmaker who's just working on a documentary on Scott Patterson, the artist in Wynwood known as Nobody. Uh, We'll be back uh, talking with Rico. Welcome back to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. We're talking to Rico James. He's a filmmaker who is working on a new documentary on the late Wynwood artist, uh, Nobody. Uh, was his street name. Uh, his real name was Scott Patterson. So he makes this hard left. Right. Uh, nobody does. Yeah. Scott does. Right. Uh, where he leaves this corporate world and starts going into the art world. Right. How is he? And he starts the street new, art world. The street art world yeah. in New York City. So yeah. how is he received? How does he begin? This old guy, forty-seven years old, right. starts to make make a name for himself. How is he received? So when he, he first went out, well, before that, he would walk the streets of New York and see the people on this on a corner selling art. Mm-hmm. He was like, man, I, I'd love to do that. If I can just, you know, bring myself to do it, I can do it. So he did that one day. Um, he was met by some of the younger artists that were already out there. Um, AV1 was one of them. Another guy named Tuise. Um, they met this guy and they they started talking and. He found kindred spirits and he was just like, you know what? They're out here. I'm out here. Quit his job and was like, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. There's this great moment in the film where he tags, tags or or creates a piece of street art on a gallery, uh, like the roll down windows. And yeah. he kind of waits and hangs out for the gallerist to show up. Right, right. And what was that? And tell me about that. That's, that the, slick, that's, the, that's the slick stuff that he, he does, man. He, he'll... Um, you know, he, he knows, again, coming from the world of advertisement, that, that was what he did professionally. So he knew that if he was going to give it a shot as, a, as an artist, you know, he had to work quick. You mm-hmm. know, he had to do something bold. He wasn't 15 years old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was like, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this now. I need, some, I need something bold. I need action. So he would, he would tag galleries with his, uh, with his insignias, with his love stories, with whatever, um, to, get, to get notice. Did he have mentors? Did he have a style that he hewed to? Was it, how, did, how did he develop his style from what you know? You know, really, he was just self-taught. Mm-hmm. Um, he started to, he wasn't doing, um, he was doing just uh, paintings on paper and canvas and things like that. Mm-hmm. Once he got with the guys in Soho who were graffiti, these were like real graffiti artists that were tagging trains and things like that. Once he got with them, he started to learn like, oh, okay, now I can do outside of a canvas. I can do some outside of it. I can put it anywhere. And that never even came to him um, as just a regular artist. Um, but again, these guys were younger. They, and, and what they took from nobody was how to really sell their stuff. So he taught them a style and how to put it out there. But he also taught, taught them how to really sell their their stuff because again these were like quiet shy artists who really didn't know how to promote themselves him being older and coming from advertisement that's what they took from from him so it was a give and take and he loved it and he fell he fell in love with it and he was like this is what i want to do how to take that art off the concrete wall and put it into something that can be sold at a gallery is a very a very baller move very smart move (laughs) absolutely not only a gallery 
I mean, the, this is, you know, when you're, when you're on the street, you're selling direct, direct to consumers. Right. You okay. have direct link. So what he realized was to get people to come and buy my work, I got to start putting it all over the city. I got to mm. put it everywhere. Gotcha. So when people see it, you can't take home a con- concrete piece of uh, wall, but you can come to his street that he's selling art on and buy one of the pictures. So he comes down to Miami. Yeah. Was there a little bit of a friction that led him to leave New York? I felt in your film there seemed yeah. to be like there's a little friction that that led him to leave. As with a lot of artists, you know, sometimes, you know, artists are are, are very sensitive people, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you know, when you put a bunch of artists together, sometimes there's going to be friction. There's going to be. So he kind of broke out from that and... Um, he wanted to start really exploring uh, other cities and what he could do. Uh, so that's when he moved to Miami and he found Wynwood. And Wynwood was like, I said, this was this place that was like, man, because in New York, it was much harder. He had gotten arrested a bunch of times in New York. So it's much harder in New York to get away with what he was doing in Miami. Miami was still hard, but there's more cops, there's more people, there's so, but he found this place in Wynwood. We're like, man, I, I think I can really do this here and help build build up this community. And he was all in for this community. And tell me about, so he starts, how he starts to, to develop his art. Tell me about yeah. some of the art that we might remember, his style. What are the iconic things that we start seeing? Well, you see the eye. He, he drew a picture with a, a face, but it have a lot, very large eye with a tear coming down it. Of course, Art is My Weapon is like one of his biggest things because he started doing, you know, the bandanas like I have one right now. He actually gave me this one. Um, and he wore the bandana over his face in a lot of there's yeah. there's not a lot of photos of him where his face is showing clearly. Yeah. Like usually he was a black hoodie cut off yeah. bandana guy. Right. That's intentional. I mean, as a graffiti artist and a street artist, sometimes you have to, you know withhold your identity so so you're not getting arrested uh, but it also it added a layer of mystery to him so that also added a okay who is this guy you know what does he do and and he decided that his name was nobody tell right. me tell me how that came about how did we go from scott patterson from orange from uh, you know orange east new orange, jersey yeah, east, east orange, orange new jersey yeah to nobody i mean he um you know as the story goes someone when he was vending um Vending in in uh, Soho in New York, someone called him nobody. You're no because they were fight. You would fight for space mm-hmm. in in Soho on the streets. Oh, so, there's a good there's a good section of your movie yeah. where he's like face to face with the dude, and he was like step off or stuff yeah. is gonna happen. Like he was yeah because you could what, tell things were gonna get physical. So once you yeah. once you establish your space in Soho or in the street or mm-hmm. anywhere, like you know real estate and and where you are is is key. So if you get that piece of real estate and you're there and people know you're going to be there and they're coming to buy your art or they're telling other people to come there, you're going to fight for that piece of real estate. Right. So that's what he would do. He was like, this is my spot. I've been here. This is so no one else can mess with my spot. Do not come over here and mess with my money. So and the name nobody then kind of how did that grow from that? So so from a, uh, you know, he was beefing with one of the vendors and other vendors and they were like, you're nobody. You're nobody. And he was like, oh, I kind of like that. All right. And he went with it as well because nobody was really, uh, it also meant that he was somebody that he he would always say, if a nobody like me Hmm. can do this, you can do, Hmm. can too. It was an an encouraging thing. Nobody is everybody. I'm nobody. Yeah, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. Who am I? I'm nobody, but I'm doing this and you can do this as well. So that's what he would always say. if If a nobody like me can do this, you can too. 
And now tell me about the ecosystem in Winwood. then. So he starts, he moves down, right. he's, he starts to create his own thing. How does he start to fit? Like, how does he start to, to add to the flavor of that, that neighborhood? You know, again, he came down and it was a lot of young artists that were, that were in the neighborhood. Give me Luke, some names. There's some there's names that you think Jenny of. Perez, there's Renda Ryder, uh, Louis Valle. Jenny Perez does a lot of collaborations. I think even yeah. with like, there was like a beer, it was like a Winwood beer. Like she did one of their can, like can collabs Absolutely, or something. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, she does stuff. She has a collab with Panther Coffee right now as okay. well too. So right on. Shout out to the, the, the local artists. Yeah. Shout out to all of them. Atomic, all, all those guys. Um, so, you know, he would, he would meet them and, um, you know, they would just vibe. Jenny in particular, who's in the film, uh, would always say that, you know, he was an early bird and she was an early bird. So they would always meet up at Panther Coffee. And it would just be talking, talking about art, talking about life, um, him, you know, collaborating with each of the artists as well. Collaboration was something that he loved to do. He loved to build with other artists. So that was something that he always built, built on as well. And he would teach them. They would teach him. And uh, it was a reciprocal thing. Why did you want to do a documentary about him because that he has obviously passed away right um but you started working on this documentary while he was living there's there's great footage of him <laughs> right. in that yeah what made you want to do that so it, it was supposed to be a different project um he started to well he moved out of winwood and he moved his studio closer to my to my house in, in the mimo district right he was uh right across the street from somewhere in the uh, right. It was like a restaurant up there that it I remember. It used seeing. to be Balance. Oh, Balance, right. Yeah, yeah, That's but now it. it's a, yeah, that was back in the now day. Now it's yeah, been like yeah, three yeah. things since <laughs> yeah, then. exactly. <laughs> That's Miami, too. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, he, he, he went over to that studio there. And to me, he was, this was uh, 2015, and he was coming up with an incredible body of work. And I would see him more often because, I, I mean, he was literally down the street from me. And I was like, man, I love this stuff, that this new stuff that you're coming out with. You know, when are you going to show? When are you going to do this? He's like, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to show. I want to be around. Any- I just want to work. That's all I want to do. I just want to produce. I just want to produce. I don't want to produce. I've done that. I've been around the world. I've done these shows. I've done Art Basel. I don't want to do that anymore. I just want to produce work. That's it. Wow. So he was really in a, in a, in a very productive mode. He was in a productive mode as well, but he was, you know, it was declining a little bit more into um, some depression as well. Mm. So you could so, see that in him and not just his work. I mean, he was a totally day. He didn't, he wasn't this outgoing character that, you know, everybody loved and would see and would put on the show. He just didn't want to do that anymore. He just wanted to work. And you guys, you guys are contemporaries, right? Yeah. So, uh, did you see yourself in him a little bit? Did Absolutely, you? yeah. In Absolutely. what ways? Tell me about that. So, you know, he was a father as well. Um, I'm a father. Your daughter's here in the studio <laughs> yeah, with my us daughter, today. Who Phoenix. actually, who actually did the music for the the film? Oh, she scored the film. Yeah, she scored the film for me. The so. music is wonderful. Oh, by thank the way. you. That's so a, shout yeah. out to Phoenix. Yeah, the music shout is out great. to Phoenix James. On, out on all platforms right now. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, yeah, what were you saying? What I just lost it yeah, for a second. Yeah, about about how you identified with him. Oh yes, absolutely. So he was a father. I was a father as well. Um, he loved to see me with my kids, um, and I understood what it was like. One, I remember one day going to um, his studio late at night. He had called me, but it was like midnight, and my wife was like, "Where are you going?" I was like, "I'm just going down to the studio." And um, we were just talking, and he was painting, and. Um, I actually was helping him just dry some paintings, mm. but just me being there and drying paintings, it just, I just felt a freedom that I haven't felt since I was, you know, in college when we were doing late night projects and things like that, 
you know, life happens. You get kids, you get family, you get responsibilities, you got to pay the mortgage. You get very serious. You life get, gets very it serious. Gets very serious. So sometimes your passions can go to the wayside. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what happened to nobody. His passions for a long time went to the wayside. But at the same time, he would see me and he'd see me with my family and my kids. It's like, man, I really like. So we admired each other. Right? You, <laughs> you each know? had something that you loved about it. He <laughs> exactly. loved the stability that you created right. and you loved the ability that he had to practice his passion. And pack, yeah, without any, without anything blocking him or, or, or being in the way. Give me a little bit about your background. Talk to me a little bit about how you got to be the guy who yeah. who has now made a, a documentary about him. Man, I just I, it's been um, well. I, I I went to Howard University, like I said. I graduated radio, television, and film. The mecca. The mecca. Um, H U. <laughs> and you came, and then you your career has been your your career yeah. moved around a little bit, right? It to did, your music, yeah. and now you're in real estate. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. It jumps all around. So, well, actually, when I was in school, well, I first well, I first went to Tennessee State, it's another HBCU in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was in Nashville, and I was just like, man, I can't be in Nashville. <laughs> and and their communication program and their radio and television program wasn't what I wanted it to be. Okay. So I just you know I came back home and I went to Howard. Um, but when I was when I was coming back home, uh, when I was at Tennessee State, my mother was a mortgage broker. She made me work with her, and I hated it because I, I had to go to school. Like I had to learn all this new stuff, and I was like, I just came from school. My I've summers, right? yeah, I was like, my summers. My friends are going out. The hottest club uh, in DC at that time was on a Sunday night, and I'd have to work Monday. So I was like, ah. Oh. So I would just tough it out. I'd stay at the club. To, three in the morning and then have to work at eight in the morning. And I, but I, I hated it, but that really showed me how to do real estate and mar- and uh, mortgages and things like that. So that's how I got into to real estate at 18, 19 years old. Um, and, and did that get, how did that get you down to Miami? Well, actually what got me down to Miami was uh, when I was in New York. So from what happened with DC, I moved from DC, graduated work, work radio at WHUR down in DC. Okay. Uh, was just, chomping at the bit to go to New York because I wanted to be in the music business. Okay. So I packed my bags. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a place to live. And I just, I went to New York. (laughs) (laughs) Like a lot of people do. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, let me see, let me see what what happens, you know, 19 years old. And actually, well, when I graduated, was uh, 21, 22. And it was like, let me just, let me roll a dice and see how this, this works. And within... You know, I was lucky and you know, I was fortunate that I had some people there. Uh, a good friend of mine, Rick Brown, was in the music business. He was he was he came from D.C. And, and moved to New York, was working at Electra Records, and he had some roommates as well. And w- just by chance, one of the roommates' uh, assistants was going on maternity leave. He said, you want to come work for me? I said, yes. At Electra Records. At Electra, yeah. Okay. It was WIA at the time. It's Warner Electra Atlantic. So okay. it was the distribution porn, uh, part of Warner mm-hmm. Electric and Atlantic. So I worked with him and kind of established myself in the business and made a name for myself, um, just hustling and being out there and going to events and networking, uh, being around the right people. And, and, you know, the thing about being in the entertainment industry, you have to do this networking. You have to talk to people, but you also have to be the one that's really working and producing. They don't care if you're out at some party until three in the morning. And that's what my boss would say. I don't care how late you stay, as long as you're back at work here Results. at nine in the morning mm-hmm. and doing what you need to do. I don't care. And so, so that that's that's what the hustle is in, in entertainment business at the time. And what brought you to Miami ultimately? 
So, which is where you met nobody. Yeah. So what happened was I would always come down to Miami for these conventions. There would always be these conventions, music conventions in, in Miami. And I was like, man, this is beautiful down here. And it'd be, you know, 15 degrees in New York. And I'm down <laughs> in, in Miami is like 70, 79 degrees. It's beautiful. I was like, man, I'd always want to, I'd, I'd love to live down here. Uh, so after I was working in the music business, I, I was working for BET as a talent executive booking acts for the, for the TV network. Um, and a mutual friend introduced me to somebody who was starting a music label down here and said, listen, I need some help. We got this new artist. We got these guys they are young. They don't know. Would you want to move to Miami? And I was like, yes. <laughs> was like, yes. <laughs> it so, pays. It doesn't matter what pays. Yeah, yeah. I moved so, to Miami. So I moved to Miami and, uh, yeah, it was, it's, it's been great. I only worked for that particular person for a little while. And I knew it wasn't going to last, but I just used that to make sure I can come down to Miami, set myself up. And then I got my real estate license at the time. That was 03. The real estate market was booming. Uh, so I got my license there. And then um, I told BET I was down in Miami. And then I started shooting uh, a bunch of shows for BET down in Miami. One of them was called Access Granite, which is kind of the behind the scenes of music videos. And at that time, everybody was either moving to Miami are uh, shooting a music video in Miami. So I worked I worked quite a bit in, in Miami shooting behind the scenes uh, of music videos, yeah. And being in the Miami community obviously connected you to artists right. like nobody. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a little break sure. here. We've been talking with Rico James. He's the director of a new documentary called Nobody Was Here about the late artist Scott Patterson who went by the artist street name Nobody. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. We're talking with Rico James. He's the director of a new documentary called Nobody Was Here uh, about the street artist Nobody, um, Scott Patterson. Yeah. Now, when you really became close to him, he was going through some things. Right. And we are seeing this. Obviously, the nature of the film was that you began this documentary about him, about his rise and right. kind of contextualizing what he did uh, for street art, especially in Wynwood. And uh, and he dies in 2016. Right. Um, he he dies. Uh, you don't spend too much time in the film uh, harping on it, but right. he he dies by suicide. Right. And uh, we should say that you know if uh, you or someone you know needs help, um, please know that people care about you and you have options. Right. Uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number is 988. All you got to do is just punch 988, and it'll lead to someone uh, that can get you some help. Yeah. He was at a point where he needed. He needed help. He needed help, but this is something he had been suffering from a long time. And again, um, you know, nobody was, a, you know, he was older, um, especially at a time, you know, every it's great now that everybody says, you know, they want more awareness, people able to uh, kind of get rid of the stigma of mental illness. Uh, but, you know, when he was younger, coming up, even when I was younger, it was like, walk it off, you'll be okay. Right. It was it, very much rub some dirt on it. Yeah, it was not it's a like, thing that you discussed openly. Uh, you wouldn't illness. discuss it openly, and especially as a man. Um, you'd be like, listen, you need to get over it. You'll be okay. And you just lock it up a little bit. You know, you lock it up again, and you lock it up again, and lock it and lock it and lock it until, you know, that, that compartment is filled. Yeah. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to burst open. Yeah. Yeah, you have to deal with it. And, and you saw him struggling to deal with it. I did. I, I saw him. Um, it's interesting because I had seen him at a point where he was totally broken down as a human being. Um, 
What do you mean? And what? How could you tell? Physically, um, you. I mean, you can. You know, it's. It's. It can start depression, anxiety can manifest itself physically, and you can start to see it. Your demeanor change, your body language. It just. It doesn't only affect your mind. It can totally affect you physically as well. So he was just caved in, and you mm. know, tears were flowing. And um, how, and how, I, how old was he, more or less, at the time? So it's 50, uh, 51, 52. 52. Yeah, 52 years of age. And it's a, the pressure just builds and builds, man. And it just it gets too much. Let's talk about his life. Yeah. In that short time from when he kind of hard pivots at 47 right. to leave a career in corporate advertising. Uh, it's a six-figure job, big house. You have a wife. You have a kids. And he starts creating art. Yeah. Now put it put into context what he's able to do in those six years or so. And in, in a short period of time, he's been able to, uh, he was able to exhibit at Scope in New York for, after a short period of time. And, and then on the streets of, of New York, um, some people from Norway see his stuff. He's able to travel. They do, do a show overseas. Um, that catches on. He's able to travel Europe. And it just snowballs from there. And like I said, like you said, a very short period of time, he was able to amass a huge body of work because with, with nobody, his thing was he woke up and did art hmm. all day long. Anybody who knew, I mean, his hands were covered with paint all day long because that's what he did. He, he barely slept. He would take these naps, but he would wake up, do art, do art, do art, do art, maybe take a little nap hang out a little bit, do art, do art, do art. And and it wasn't a thing of like, this has to be a masterpiece. This is going to be amazing. It was like, I'm just producing. It'll be five. It could be five different pieces at one time and I can produce it and I can make it incredible or it might be some trash, but I'm going to no, no matter what it is, I'm going to get this expression out. I'm going to get it on some, some, um, some canvas and people are going to love it. They're going to hate it. I'm going to love it. I'm going to hate it, but I am working and that's it. He always used to say to me, if I don't work, I don't eat. And that was that was a real thing. Like he would sell his stuff online. So that's how he made his money. Right. He, he was making up for lost time. He too. was making up. Yeah. And it was kind of like this clock in him. Like, and I, I think that's when he was telling me, like, I just want to work. That's all I want to do. I don't want to do anything else. So he was just producing, producing, producing not only large pieces, but when he was at be at, when he would be at Panther Coffee, he would make these little really small pieces on cardboard and hand them out to people from all over the world and just give them to them and say, mm. hey, this is just an art piece from nobody. And he would say, nobody loves you. And they were like, what are you talking about? He's like, no, no, my name is nobody and I love you. <laughs> and it would move them. So, yeah. And these people still have these pieces. I still get, um, I still get direct messages on the, uh, the movie Instagram, which is nobody underscore was underscore here underscore tmnk so i get um messages like i have his artwork or he gave me this piece in winwood or i didn't know him but i loved his art and i bought it online i can't wait to see the documentary so people still know him um and they still feel feel a way about him they they're deep in his heart well there's a there's a nature of street art where it's evanescent you know uh yeah street art it gets painted over by whether it's right. uh, other artists or you know some business painting over exactly. um so does his art persist anywhere? Is there anywhere that people can see it today? Like, There's scant pieces. Someone just sent me, Jenny, actually Jenny Perez sent me a piece that was in um, the design district, just his, his stencil of art as my weapon. But, you know, he, listen, this man did so much in Winwood. Uh, sometimes business, <laughs> to the detriment of uh, 
his own name because no, everybody knew who he was. Right. So as soon as he put it up, they'd cover it. Or other artists started um, going over his stuff as well because he was going over other artists' stuff. Oh, so um, he so something happened there that he 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 met an environment where there was a little again a little bit of beefing where absolutely uh, yeah. But again, um, how did it, that affect him? Because you know that's that's a thing that seemed, he seemed to be running from in New York and. He was trying to explain to a lot of the artists that I'm adding to your work. Mm. <laughs> like, I want to work with you. Uh, other times, he may have done it to somebody maybe he didn't like. Right. Oh, I you see. know, so it was always uh, it was always a bit of contention with other artists because really it's an unwritten rule that you just don't you don't go over other people's work. Right. But again, his thing was, if it's on the street, it's fair game, mm-hmm. which brings you to. Right now in Wynwood, where there's Wynwood Walls, it's actually a museum now. It's not, you know, it's not on the street. So it's protected. So no one can go over that. And that's, I think, to be honest with you, I think that's a good thing. Because now nobody, there's no, there's no, nothing you can see of nobody's. Because it's being painted over. It's in public spaces. It's on other, it was on other buildings. So it's gone now. Right. But if you have some place that's a museum that has walls that are just for street art or graffiti, it can be, be preserved and, and like for uh, and, and enjoyed by a lot of people. So there's folks out there who have some of his artwork. Man, there's there's people all around the world who have his artwork. Um, some know who he is. Some some, some may not. Um, but if you have some of his artwork, treasure it, man. Because that's first of all, that's what he wanted. He wanted his artwork to create a, an emotional response. Mm-hmm. His thing, and, and it's in the film, was people are my street art. Interesting. You know, oh, that's great. People are my street art. How I make them feel. A smile on your face when I give you some artwork. He was like, even a nobody like me can make a difference in your day. Do, do you have some of his art? I do. Is yeah. there is there a piece that that you really like? Yeah, I mean, he gave me a, he gave me a piece. I actually curated a, a show for him when he when I was pushing him to do a show for our Basil, and he was like, I don't want to do it. In fact, he flew to Berlin when I was doing the show. <laughs> oh, really? And people, this I, this one uh, this one person flew from Geneva to come see him, and I was like, "I'm sorry, he's in Berlin." <laughs> so he gave me a beautiful piece that I that he he picked for me, and I have it in my bedroom, and I love it, and I treasure it. Man. What stands out of it? Is there is there a part of it that really pops to you? It's just the color, and he loved he he did this in pink, and he did it for me. He said, "You know, I'm gonna give you this piece." Um, it was an African American woman. He was like, "You know, you're you're an Af- you have African American family. I'm gonna give you this particular piece, and it has this big love on it." And I was like, you know, tell talk to my wife. I was like, "Well, where do you want to put it?" And she's like, "Well, let's put it in the bedroom. It says love. Let's uh, so it looks great, and it's great against my um, my walls too. It looks good." So you were so close to him yeah. uh, and became so close to him that uh, he dies in 2016. Right. Uh, it must have, it clearly had an effect on you because you were making this documentary and you just put it aside. Yeah, I had to put it down because it was, it was a shocking thing. I mean, I learned online that he passed away and I had just seen wow. him um, three, I think three weeks before that, three or four weeks because he had, he had just come come back from Germany. Mm. He was in an incredible mood. He was super happy. He was like, "I've learned this new style in Germany." It was with this. He was like, "I have this whole new style." I was just like, "Okay, great. Let's let's start shooting again." Because with him, I would shoot a little bit, then he would disappear, or his phone number would change, mm. or he'd be out of the country, or he just didn't want to deal with me. 
Um, but he, he said, yeah, I got this new style. And, and I said, okay, cool. And then, you know, three weeks later he was gone. Wow. So I stopped it. I just didn't know what to do. And then, um, one day I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to pick up my camera and, and continue the story and just started shooting. Was there a moment? Was there something that, that led you to it? Or you just, did you look at your camera? Did you look know, at the Carlos, piece of art? I, I just, it, it really, I, I, I really just woke up one day and was like, I'm going to keep this project going. Wow. And his one of his good friends, Kia, she was the first person I called. I said, hey, I just want to interview you and see how this goes. And I interviewed her. And then I just kept going. And everybody was like, oh, this is great that you're doing this. And then, oh, my God, I can't believe you're doing this. Oh, this is so great. You need to talk to this person. You need to talk to this person. And then you need to. So it just started snowballing from there. And you end up uh, there's a, there's really great moments with his daughter. Right. Um, who, uh, you know, was talking Sienna. with him uh, even as he was getting close to a very depressive period right. and things like that. So um, how have, how has his family has uh, responded to this? His, his, his daughter just saw it and she, she says it's very cathartic. I was worried about her watching it because, you mm-hmm. know, of course it's very upsetting. Um, but it's also encouraging. So she was very happy to see um, that her father's work, the, the time that she, he sacrificed from being with her and the family, like it meant something to people. So she kind of, and she told me, she was like, I understand now. I didn't understand before, but now I'm starting to understand. So it's, it's good. She, she loves it and she's all behind it. What do you hope when people see it that they'll take away from this? So the, there's, this, there's many layers to this, this film that I think people will enjoy. It's, it is about a family. Um, it is about um, passion. It is about never giving up on your dreams. It is about mental health and how important that is for people and it's about art and uh how people can be moved by art and it can change your life so i want people to take that away i want i want um it's it's just life man it's you know it's happy it's sad it's challenges it's ups and downs and this is a particular film this particular film uh highlights uh a man who never wanted to give up on his passion, even at 47 years old. And, and he did it. He did it worldwide. He did it globally. He did what he said he wanted to do. Yeah. There's an, there's an inspiration uh, there about, about not giving up on this passion. Right. And, but, but also a little bit of a cautionary tale, like, it's a like, cautionary like tale, what yeah. you, what you give up, what you give up to get what there. What you give up. I tell people, you know, there's passion and there's unbridled passion and you have to be, um, you have to understand and 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 realize when um, your your passion might be taking you down a, a wrong a wrong turn somewhere. So. What is a lesson from him that you think you'll take away? You know, with him and, and with this film, has always been challenges because you know I don't have any money. There's, you know, I just started this just by myself. Of course, I've had different people. Um, support me, Jamani Namdi and Joe Wempo were executive producers of the of the film. But it was always to whatever hurdle there is, you're gonna keep. You can keep going. You can jump over that. You don't even have to jump over it. Maybe you go under it. <laughs> Maybe you go around it. If there's a hurdle, you have to knock it down. And that's what I've been doing. And that's that's really what's been pushing me this whole time. Is every time I wanted to stop, I thought about him, and he never stopped. Where can people go to find out about the film? So there's uh, the Instagram, all the socials. Uh, nobody underscore was he. Unders- nobody was here. It's nobody underscore was underscore here underscore TMNK. Okay. On uh, Instagram, Facebook, nobody was here. Um, Twitter, 
um, at was TMNK. Uh, we'll probably do a filming. We've been doing filmings, uh, showings of the film. We'll probably do one uh, February 11th in a secret location. So follow all of uh, the socials to find out where the uh, the next showing is. And, and we'll remind folks that if you or someone you know that needs help, please know you have options. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline number is 988. Just punch 988. Uh, Rico James is the director of a new document, documentary titled Nobody Was Here. It's about the artist Scott Patterson, known by the street name Nobody. Uh, and you heard where you can find out info on all our social media. Rico, thanks so much for being no, with thank us. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And that's Sundown for Wednesday, January 11th. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our digital editor is Mateo Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor, and our senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundal's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this episode. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up next week on the program, we're discussing the beauty of transition rituals like burials and cremation services, how we honor our ancestors with these practices that also have the power of reconciliation and healing. It's all part of a forthcoming local exhibition centered around a historically black cemetery in Brownsville. That's tomorrow on Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. Public Media.